Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, your body, and your movement, and whatever other abstract aspects of self that may potentially arise. I just had a large cup of coffee. So I apologize for my belligerence. Today's conversation was with someone that I greatly admire and respect in the world of biomechanics and general healing of the mind and the body. His focus is on the body and he is very privy to the reality that what's going on inside of that noggin of yours, your thoughts and feelings and expectations and hopes and dreams and desires and fears and guilts, all that is tied in to the manner in which you occupy your physical vessel. And that's what we get into in this conversation with Dr. Perry Nicholson. I greatly value this man's work. He's the founder of Stop Chasing Pain, which is an excellent resource in the form of podcast, social media, all things, place to help you support yourself and learn how to take care of yourself and learn how to stop chasing pain and in fact getting to the root source of that stuff. And that is what we discuss in this conversation. I want to take a moment and thank our friends over at Inside Tracker for being such lovely supporters of this podcast. If you feel overwhelmed and confused by all the different diets, all the different viewpoints on nutrition and all the different advice you're getting from thousands of health influencers, you follow on Instagram or all the podcasts you listen to, I've got something very important to share with you. You don't need to feel overwhelmed or confused anymore. Inside Tracker helps you optimize your body using science and technology to deliver ultra personalized guidance. They tell you what you need to do and why. This is amazing because they realize that your body is unique and your nutrition and fitness plan should be as well. They aren't copy and pasting plans. They are analyzing your blood, DNA, and habits to develop a plan that will set you up for ultimate success. No more questioning what you should or shouldn't be eating and doing and finally get a concrete answer for what is right for your body. Plus, Inside Tracker helps you track your progress and adjust your plan as needed based on real-time feedback from your body. If you're ready to get serious about taking your health, fitness, and nutrition to the next level, don't even think twice about trying out Inside Tracker. It is hands down the best way to get an accurate and effective plan based on your own body. You can start your plan by getting 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. All you have to do is head over to insidetracker.com slash align. That's 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you go to insidetracker.com slash align. All right, let's get back to it with my guy, Dr. Perry Nicholson. Pow. I'm in my son's room because I'm having some construction down at the house. And my nice, I love that your son has Elon Musk smoking a, a J on the wall. How old is your son? He's actually 21, so he's uh, coming back from school, and like most people, just trying to settle in with what comes next. You know, how's your relationship with him changed over the years? Well, I mean, it definitely changes a new dynamic the older that they get and they become their their own man, but. We have a great one because I had a really nice home with my father. And I lost my father when I was young at 14 from a brain tumor. And it, it really affected me. And I lost, to, you know, my, my hero, you might say. And then I, I knew that when I have my own children, 
I was going to remember how that felt not having my parent there. So you can choose not to be there or, or you can have an illness that takes you away. Either one, you're not there. Do you have any sensation of how that experience with your dad, how that has shown up in your life and then also kind of in continuation with like the mind-body conversation in, in your body? Oh, yeah. It shaped me a lot of different ways. I think that's one of the things that I've cycled back to when I've studied trauma and the effects of it on health because I developed, I'm 54 years old, I developed a lot of health issues over the years, probably more so than the last 20 when I got diagnosed cancer in the throat and the thyroid and then cycled back years later after that with some poly autoimmunity, they call it, when you have more than one autoimmune diagnosis. I think there's some deep-seated trauma connection to that loss now that I know I've gone down that road. It's not something I ever looked at before. I don't think most people look at the role of emotions and trauma and illness until you've lost pretty much all hope and tried everything you could think of. And then now you look at the stuff that seems crazy. But when you get there, you realize it's not crazy at all. (laughs) And uh, you, you should have been looking at it all along. That's why I always say there's always an emotional component to chronic pain or an injury. That's what makes us human beings and and not rocks. And because he died of a glioblastoma, which is a brain tumor, and then two years after he died, my maternal grandfather died from a glioblastoma as well. So it's in the family lineage. And I think that's what got me fascinated about the brain, honestly, in general. And one of the reasons why I'm really looking at now the role of the what's called the glymphatic system or the lymphatic system of the brain and its role in eliminating toxins and inflammation in the brain that manifests as neurodegenerative disorders. But in my mind, it can manifest as cancer. I mean, it can manifest as whatever the hell it wants to. And so that's what I think is cycle me back all these years. And you ever have somebody ask you that question? I mean, if you could go back and do a, a different profession than what you do now, what would it be? I would say a neuroscientist without question, because I'm so geeked out on the brain and love everything about it. But I'll be honest with you, my clinical experience that I've been through has been very valuable to me because sometimes when you go into neuroscience, it's all about looking at the brain, but maybe there's not a lot of practical experience on working with real humans outside of the lab sometimes, you follow? And that's where my greatest lessons have come from, is from my own suffering and then the suffering of people that ended up knocking on my door after I started to share my suffering and my journey towards recovering from that. I wonder if your thoughts in relation to like trauma being stored in the body, do you think that it's as clear and concise as like a Louise Hay I think her, what is it, Heal Your Body is her her book. Do you think it's as clear and concise as hers, where it's like, if you got a liver thing, it's, I'm making this up, but issues with your mother, if you have a gallbladder thing, it's some, you know, it's very specific, like this is what it is. Or do you think it's just general, something that's too much for the the human organism to, to process in the moment can maybe be stored as like a contraction or a resistance or a binding, and then you didn't have the resources to to release it 
and then it manifests wherever it manifests? Or do you think there's actually a clear, almost like code to the way that different traumas are stored and manifest in the body? I don't think anybody has any idea of what it is. We like to think that we do, but we probably got no clues. Probably not even any one of those you just mentioned. <laughs> Sometimes it's outside the scope of what you're even able to comprehend from our, our limited mind in relationship to how the quantum field is or the life force or energy or whatever you believe in. I just know that, you know, one minute the tissue is alive and you're talking to somebody and the next minute the tissue's there, but life's not. Something's going on. I might not know what it is. You can call it magic. Magic is just something we don't understand yet. And we might not ever understand that. But I think that when you have trauma, trapped emotions, you might call that, right, that it can manifest any way that it wants to. One of the things that one of my favorite phrases that I say is that the human body is under no obligation to make sense to you. Like it could care less whether you figure out why it's doing what it's doing or not. It doesn't care. It's just going to keep doing. We're the one that get all stressed about it and fight each other about it. And I think the body is actually amused at how much we struggle with that. And I got that quote. I may have said this on the last podcast, but I was watching a segment on YouTube and Neil deGrasse Tyson the astrophysicist, astronomer, you know, extraordinaire said that the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. And I'm like, that's freaking brilliant. And, and I said to myself, you could actually say that about the body because that's its own magnificent universe that we haven't even tapped into. And then the brain is beyond that. They think the brain may be more complex than the universe itself. What we think we know about the brain is really funny because we get it wrong all the time. <laughs> And, and then we go, whoops, a daisy. We kind of got that wrong. And then we need to change what we think and the way we look at it. It wasn't that long ago that we used to think that the brain could not change itself, that you've got what you got. And then it slowly deteriorates like pebbles in a bucket. I keep taking the pebbles out and then it's, it's done. Now they realize that you can regenerate and rewire and refire. And that's called neuroplasticity. So think about that for a moment. It used to be where we thought no, and then it's the complete opposite now. Also, there wasn't a time when we could see what was happening with the brain in real time. We could guess of what we thought was happening, but then you got the functional real-time MRIs, and you could, it's quite fascinating when you look and see what happens when they show people images, or they say words, or you hear stories, and the, the different ways that a brain fires and wires. And here's the thing that's crazy, why you're never going to get the same, like you asked the question about, will it, if you do this, will you get that? No, because I can have two people who hear the same story and they get two different brain wiring patterns that are nowhere near the same. But you heard the same story. Well, what's the difference? Well, it's it's your story up to the time you heard. It's the story of your life prior to the point you just heard the story that I told you that influences where trauma is going to go. I just know from my standpoint, I believe that trauma and shock is is stored as tension in the body. It's trapped energy that can't get out the way it needs to. And usually it can't get out because you repress it and you don't talk about it, which can be cultural. It can also be for you because you feel shame or you don't feel like you're strong enough to talk about it. Or you go by culture and you know, you're supposed to just talk about it, even get to talking. But talking really doesn't help much either because you're leaving out that body connection. That's why somatics and movement and 
and sensation are so powerful. So when you have trauma, which I truly believe is the sooner you can get movement into your body after afterwards, the better, which is not always easy because one of the responses to trauma is freezing, where you just immobilize yourself because of the fear or hoping that if you just don't do anything or you don't move, the trauma or the threat goes away. And that happens through no choice of your own, honestly. It's a, it's a neurological survival switch. Then you don't know if it's going to happen to you or not. An idea that came up as you were, as you were talking was that I think it was a Voltaire quote. It said something along the lines, paraphrasing, that the, the art of medicine is entertaining the patient while nature cures the disease. And the reason that that idea popped up for me is I think that so much so much of us being in the way of ourselves is being attached to the illusion of control. And so many people, maybe like Joe Dispenza would be a, an obvious example, Byron Katie would be another example, you know, Eckhart Tolle maybe, they kind of get to this snapping point, whether it's a mental thing or a physical thing or, or both, and they finally just let go and come into this place of trust or surrender or all of these kind of like new age, new age words. And then suddenly they can come online into, into healing. And I feel like there's some type of, it gets into like this supernatural type world. But I think a lot of, whether we like to believe it or not, I think a lot of what's actually going is just, you know, back to the Voltaire quote. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of supernaturalness and quotations going on. And we have this story that we're in control taking care of it. But in fact, I think there's, you know, there's, there's deeper layers that are informing what's happening. Right. Well, I love that. I, the life is supernatural, right? That's the ultimate ego trip to think that you're in control of anything because you're not. <laughs> right? We just like to think that we are because it makes us feel what? Safe. Right? So that's why you stand by what you believe in and whether somebody's challenging it because, I mean, that can open up a whole new world of vulnerability and, and uncertainty. You know, we've talked about in the past and, and I've learned from really smart people. And you know how you hear something and then it just hits you like a Mack truck that you're like, holy cow, I need to sit back and take that one in because that's really, really powerful. And this one hit me and, and it was by my friend Bo Lotto, who's been on my podcast and is a brilliant neuroscientist. He wrote one of my favorite books called Deviate. And he said the number one stressor to the human nervous system to the body is uncertainty, the unknown, not knowing, right? But here's the paradox. We need it at the same time. So how in the hell do you go about something that terrifies you, but you need it at the same time, <laughs> right? So his answer to that, and is actually the, the answer that Stephen Porges gave me is one word. We like uncertainty when we have a background of safety associated with it. There's one word that encompasses that that is across all nature. It's not man-made. And it's one four-letter word. I mean, I sure got it. Yeah, it's four letters. <laughs> it's play. Play is how you develop and cross the uncertainty, but you have boundaries of safety. And it's play with other humans, other people. Right. So that's how you learn to integrate and socialize and know your boundaries and know, was that too rough? 
you don't want to win all the time when you play because nobody wants to play with you, right? And so you have to have this give and take. And then you lose a sense of what when you're playing? Control, maybe? or Yeah, well, you, you lose a sense of, it's like judgment of yourself. or Attachment, maybe? Yeah, because you're in the flow state without thinking about it, right? It, it's not like right or wrong play. It's just play. And if it is right or wrong in relationship to the rules, I mean, you don't beat yourself up about it, right? That, that, that's how you learn. That's one of the reasons that I really have a big problem with the way that therapies are done of all different types, particularly in the world of movement and physical therapy and uh, rehabilitation, because everything is so structured and serious. And we feel that if it's not serious, it's not as effective, right? Uh, And I read a quote once that there's zero correlation between appearing to be serious and actually being good at what you do, which means there's a lot of serious people that really suck at what they do. And there's people that you think are joke, but they're really, really great at it. And I think that they've got the magic because you realize that, you know, if I've got somebody and I'm trying to to get them to move better and feel better and not be fearful of movement, why am I going to give them anxiety and an obsessive compulsive disorder that they're moving not right or wrong or, you know, you need to move your right elbow 15 degrees and your pelvic tilt 10 degrees and then breathe through one straw through a nostril. I mean, I'm going to tell you, that's not going to give me any long-term results because you can't carry that over in real life and it gives me an anxiety attack. So what I can do is I can put you into these playful states and then, you know, you forget about your reality. So here's a case in point that I saw somebody in the movement world do this, and it was Edo Portal. Somebody people want to read about that. And he's a brilliant mover, and he had somebody who had low back pain, and they were scared to move in the lower back. Because here's what happens is that if your lower back hurts when you've moved in the past, then you, you start to think, when I move in a particular way, when I hurt my back the last time, it's probably going to hurt again. So your brain learned this emotion of fear and pain with it. So there's a lot to be said that pain is in the brain and there's nothing wrong with your back except you think it's going to hurt every time that you move. And that does happen. Your brain says, oh, man, Perry, the last time you bent over to pick up something, your back went out and then you were out of work for three weeks and you could barely move. And then you, you were in threat of losing your job. And, you know, you go through all this catastrophe stuff, right? So what he did was he he got a stick and he started playing with the stick and he had the person focus on the stick and he started to wave the stick kind of close to their body and over them and around them. And he said, okay, we're going to play a game now. I want you to just concentrate on the stick, but don't let me hit you anywhere on your body with the stick. And, And you can bend and twist and move and do whatever you want to avoid the stick, but you have to stay within this little circle here so what were they focusing on the whole time not hitting the stick yeah they weren't focusing on you know what am i doing with my back what am i doing if i'm and what he did was he went around them and over them so they had to bend twist and rotate every direction even forward and then he would ask them so how did your back feel and they didn't feel anything on the back right so they took him out of that context of what to expect. That's what play is. So 
Uncertainty is a big thing for the human body and the brain because our brain is a prediction organ. It's designed to predict what comes next as best it can based on what it predicted in the past. Because if it did it in the past and you're still alive, it probably worked out pretty well because you're still alive. So it makes predictions based on one criteria. I don't want to be dead in the next second. As, as long as I'm not dead, that's a great day. Happiness is way down on the totem pole of priority for your brain because you can't be happy when you're dead, right? So it just makes predictions, and those predictions are based on prior actions. So your actions that you're taking right now will impact your predictions for the next thing that you do. That's hence why you always kind of repeat the same habits and behaviors and you get the same outcomes. We're always trying to look at the future, but you have to remember that the present is your future past. So that's my matrix moment, which means that right now what you're doing is your future past. So if you want to change what happens next, you change what you're doing in the moment, or you change the meaning of what happened to you in the past, which is the unique gift as we have as human beings. And the same friend of mine, Bo Lotto, said that you can't change what happened, but you can change the meaning of what happened. And that's the uniqueness of the human being is that you can take a tragedy and bring something to it that has meaning for you, right? You can take a good thing and you can bring a bad meaning to it as well. It works both ways. But here's the thing. I mean, you're in charge of the meaning. So a word in and of itself is just information. So when you string words together, they start to form a meaning. But even that changes based on how you put the words together and where you put more emphasis on what word when you're talking. So I could say the same exact sentence one way, and then I could change the tone of one word and completely change what your nervous system does with the same sentence. That's how we talk to babies or uh, they're like, oh, how cute, right? You lower your, you change your tone or your voice. And then if I say the same sentence and then I change my tone of my voice, right? I mean, you could insult somebody who doesn't know the language and be talking to them with like, oh, really, really nice. And they think you're being nice to them. But meanwhile, you're trash talking. Right. I mean, so it's, it's all these different variables that you have to take into play when you're communicating with someone. I want to take a moment and thank our friends over at BioOptimizers for supporting this podcast. Are you eating foods that are regularly spiking your blood sugar? For many of us, it is quite challenging, myself included. At times, a big fan of eating single pints of ice cream on occasion. And that blood sugar will get blasted as a product of doing that. But did you know blood sugar spikes cause a couple of different things? Converting the carbs you ate into fat instead of energy and also increased levels of hunger, triggering you to eat more food than you actually need, which also leads to fat storage. So even if you are eating healthy carbs, but you eat way too many too quickly without much fiber or fat to slow down absorption, you'll also experience these two things, which also leads to low energy, brain fog, and weight gain. 
Of course, we can't avoid these foods altogether because we are human, right? So I'll let you in on a little secret. Bio-Optimizer's Blood Sugar Breakthrough helps keep your blood sugar balanced when you have those occasional blowout bouts of a pugilistic matchup against a pint of Nomu ice cream or something of the sort, which typically my go-to. This easy-to-take supplement is the result of numerous tests to find the absolute best formula for maintaining healthy blood sugar. In fact, bio-optimizers went through five different formulations before landing on this specific one. Blood Sugar Breakthrough works to safely lower blood sugar after meals so that you can maintain a healthy weight and redirect carbs to your muscles where they can be burned for energy. This means you'll avoid the worst effect of high blood sugar, like weight gain, while enjoying more stable energy mental clarity, and fewer cravings. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health forward slash align, and you'll save 10% by using the align code. Technically, you don't actually need to use the align code if you go to that URL. So you can go to the URL bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash align, and then the 10% discount will be a part of it. Or you can use align 10 at checkout, and you'll get 10% as well. So that's it. That's all. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this product. And per mention, I really value Bioptimizers as a company and I trust the sourcing of their products and the intention they put into them. So jump over to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash align for 10% off. I also want to take a moment and thank our friends over at Hone. I literally just finished drinking a big fat cup of matcha, which was delicious. If you drink too much coffee, like I do as well, I actually had some coffee this morning, or you experience negative effects from coffee, I highly recommend trying out Hone. This is a blend of ceremonial grade matcha, USDA organic cordyceps, and methylated vitamin B12 and B6 that not only brings you the same energy as coffee, but the energy is longer lasting. In last week's episode, I told you about the amazing benefits of matcha, including the way that it gives you sustainable energy without the negative side effects of coffee. But now I want to touch on why I love cordyceps. It increases athletic performance by enhancing your stamina, energy, and endurance. It greatly increases cognitive function. It's a great prebiotic for gut health. It helps to reduce inflammation and also helps to reduce anxiety. It's a great liver cleanser. It gives you some antiviral support, and the list goes on and on. The fact that you can match cordyceps, methylated vitamin B12, and B6 all in one supplement is absolutely amazing to me. And it's not only a supplement, it's a delicious beverage that genuinely I really enjoy. I love sharing it with people. I think it's fantastic. So I wouldn't necessarily put it into the realm of, of supplement, but if you extract all the parts from it, it's got all the things you need, which is awesome. Uh, my favorite way to drink hone is by mixing it with some hot water and full fat coconut milk for a delicious matcha latte. I'll typically drink this in place of a second cup of coffee and have found my energy levels to be higher than ever before. You can get longer lasting energy plus reduce your stress and anxiety with hone blends now by heading over to honeblends.com and use the code ALIGN for 30% off, which is huge. Nobody ever gives you 30% off. It's amazing. 30% off your order now with code ALIGN by heading over to honeblends.com. That's H-O-N-E-B-L-E-N-D-S dot com. ALIGN code discount or at checkout rather, and you'll get a 30% discount. 
All right, back to the podcast. I think this the social engagement system to use like polyvagal Stephen Porter's talk or or just play to use you know anybody else's talk. Jak Panskep, you familiar with him? He's like the, the rat tickler. So from his research, essentially pointed out that there's like separate systems of the brain devoted specific to play. And I don't know what those systems are called right now or if I'm describing that exactly perfectly, but it's an innate system in your self to play. And when, from a polyvagal perspective, when you go into that social engagement system, that can take you out of that, you know, dorsal frozen space into, you know, if you hack your, you can jump yourself up the ladder into that balance of parasympathetic and sympathetic based on activating that social engagement. And when you can get into that space, it becomes this thing. It's like this effortless action or way or, you know, flow state or anything. And I think that in that space, there's a reason that it's become popular to study in the last, in the last recent, and then also probably, you know, forever. I think there's really deep, powerful healing mechanisms within that, that we don't understand. And the people that are probably thriving the most are intentionally or unintentionally hacking in quotations that system where they occupy the space of kind of like a, a playful perception or engagement with reality. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. You always have to remember there's a human being attached to the tissues and the diagnosis that you're working on. And how well that injury or disease or whatever they're coming in with is going to recover depends on the story of the person carrying it around. And that's where we get lost in medicine because two people can have the same diagnosis, but you can't treat them the exact same way because they didn't get to the diagnosis the same way, even though they got the label. Because people can become a label. I see it all the time, right? And when you slap a label on somebody, all of a sudden they start to develop all the characteristics of the label, even ones they didn't have before because they're supposed to have them. You follow? And if you get on, we have an information superhighway on the internet, and then I see people all the time when they suspect that they have something, and then they type in the symptom on Google, and next thing you know, they've got dengue fever, and they've never been in the wrong part of Minneapolis, you know? Like, you got to be careful, the quicksand that you get roped into, because you can manifest things just by thinking of it. How you think changes your biology. So you better be careful what kind of thoughts you put in there yourself, but the kind of thoughts that you let other people put in there for you, right? Because that can take a stranglehold on you and you'll never get out. That's why what they call the placebo and the nocebo effect are so powerful. So a lot of people have heard of the placebo effect. And then unfortunately, medicine tends to trash that as not being real. I'm like, it's freaking real. And you better use that power to your advantage in conjunction with what are the therapies that you're doing. Because if you think you feel better, you can feel better. If you think you feel worse, you'll feel worse. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? So you need to use that placebo effect. But the nocebo effect is can be even more powerful. And that's the one where words or phrases and, and labels can prevent you from ever getting beyond a certain point. 
they have that negative aspect. And the human nervous system is designed to see things from a negative aspect first, not positive. And that's just a basic survival response because it, it needs to assume from a standpoint that whatever is out there is going to hurt me and kill me and there's not good motives here because you only get one chance to get that wrong. Because <laughs> if you think positive when it should have been negative, but you can't learn your lesson because you're some something else's food, you're dead, you're done, right? And so your brain goes there and then that's when you start to learn these cues, right? And But that's what these instincts are for. This innate, they call it interoception, the feeling of inside sense of that lump in your throat, that thing in your chest, the twisting in your gut that you get, which is contextual too, because you can get a twisting in your gut because you got a bad feeling when you're walking on the street and somebody's walking two steps behind you, right? You get that sense. First of all, you just might want to be aware that they're probably going to do something. So expect it. And then you can have the same gut feeling when you come across somebody that you are really, really attracted to. And you're like, ah, holy cow, this might be the one. It's the same feeling, but you have to put it under context. So these sensory input things are all context driven. I feel like I deserve lashings for saying the word mystical and not backing it up with anything that's like tangible. I think that the tangible aspect of some of like the these seemingly inexplicable mystical happenings is pretty apparent that if you go into a place of protection or guarding, shut down, fear, defense, then you're going to contract. Just like if someone's going to, you know, punch you in the face, you're going to clench your jaw, you're going to, you know, protect your neck, you might cover your nuts, you know, cover your liver. And you can do that in your mind. And so if you're going into that place of that nocebo of essentially like praying for the worst thing to happen just by channeling those thoughts of, oh, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Naturally, it would make sense for you to cultivate some level of contraction in your body. And that would translate to maybe your blood vessels or maybe somewhere in your nervous system or maybe your lymphatic system. And then that contraction ultimately, and this is, I'm just you know trying to piece this together, but that contraction ultimately could lead to like a buildup and a backup, and then maybe some type of illness or mutation or something of the sort. And it started with, with an idea and then had a physiological manifestation. And it seems like magic. Yeah. Well, like I said before, magic is just stuff we don't understand yet. So that's some of the work that you touched on there about tightness in tissue. So I just, I follow the work when I got into emotion-based medicine. One of the first people I started to learn from was the doctor that helped Howard Stern with his back pain. And his name was Dr. John Sarno, who was really a pioneer and ahead of his time and unfortunately passed away. But you know, his whole premise was that chronic lower back pain is because of holding on to anger, rage, or fear, emotions, and it manifests in the back. It didn't have anything to do with, beyond a certain point with uh, biomechanical issues or tissue damage. And, you know, that's really incredible because, you know, at the time people thought he was fruit loopy out of his brain, but that's how medicine works because any new pioneer, you're going to be driven out because you're challenging the status quo. That's the history of medicine right there. But we know now that when you see damage to tissue on tests or MRIs, they don't correlate to pain 
and they don't correlate to the level of pain. Because there's many people who have damage in their lower back and they're like, well, thanks for the update. Can I go running now? I appreciate it. And then there's other ones that can't move and you don't see anything there. And they, you know, like, I don't understand why you hurt. But where you have to be careful is, is that when you see damage on there, you tell people that's the cause of the problem. I'm like, how the hell do you know that? Maybe there's people are allowed to have more than one problem, by the way. And then you have to ask yourself, well, why did you get it there? Why did you get wearing and tearing and degeneration in your right knee and you're not in your left knee? They're the same age, right? So they should look the same, but they don't. So he was saying that one of his premises, he says, is called TMS. It's tension myoneural or tension myositis syndrome. And as soon as I saw that, so many pieces came in for me when, when, I, when I read that was tension speaks for itself. Myo is muscle. Neural neuritis is inflammation in a nerve. Itis is inflammation syndrome, which means it can manifest wherever the hell it wants. And it's basically saying that tight tissue doesn't accept the blood flow well. But you got to remember that blood doesn't function alone as a fluid. So you've got, you've got, I, so I say tight tissue doesn't accept fluid flow well. And then you say, what type? Good question. Arterial flow, which is the red blood coming from your heart with your oxygen and your nutrients. Your venous flow, which is called the blue blood in Eastern medicine because it's darker because it doesn't have oxygen in there. It holds waste and carbon dioxide. And then your lymphatic system is another big one. Then they all function together. They all travel together. If you have a problem with one, you're going to have a problem with all three because they all speak to each other. And the other one is your interstitial fluid, the fluid that sits around the cells that you're living in. And that's controlled by the veins and the lymphatics either way. So when you, you can restrict flow of fluid. Well, that's really big, man, because the only way your cells get anything is from fluid flow. So let's say you have an injury, right? You're going to damage cells, right? And then you need inflammation. You better get inflammation because inflammation tells you that something's hurt. So now you'll hopefully rest and protect and let the body begin to heal itself. But the inflammation also has a lot of chemicals that you need to repair. One, like sending a lot of your immune system there and a lot of your blood there. So it can kill whatever pathogen is there or whatever damage. So you need to get all that there, and you need to get nutrients and oxygen there, and that comes through the blood flow. But after you've used all that or the damaged cells, those cells now have to get out of your body. And how in the world do they get out? That's a good question. They get out through the veins, and they get out through the lymphatics. Stuff that can't get out through the veins that's too large has to go out through the lymphatics, mostly protein. And you're going to have a lot of that when you have an injury. Uh, what happens if you're so tight and restricted that that process can't happen? It gets worse or is prolonged. Well, you're not going to heal. Or breaks down. Yeah, yeah, because chronic disease and chronic pain occurs when you lose the ability to make new cells that work, right? Because if you can make a new cell that work, you wouldn't be sick. You'd be better. You'd get sick, but you'd get better. So then that begs the common sense question. What do you need to make a new cell that works? Well, you need energy, right? How do you make energy in a cell? It's called the Krebs cycle. What do you need for that? You need nutrients, oxygen, right? 
in order to make that happen, and then they use that because if you're low on oxygen, you're in big trouble, and most people are. And then once here's the thing that people need to realize is that even if you had all that stuff, when the cell uses it, it now becomes toxic waste. It becomes oxidative stress. It be, you become toxic to yourself when you've used nutrients and you can't get rid of them. And that's what stagnation is. That's what tightness means. And that means the body says, I would love to be able to give you new cells, but I can't get rid of the waste here. So what do you want me to do? And what the body says, okay, well, I need you to make the best cells that you can with what we've got. And God forbid you're eating crap food because you're going to make crap cells with it. It's the only thing you got. I learned from a guy named Dr. Jerry Tenna who said something to me once. It was quite amazing because that's some of his work. He said, you're supposed to have a new gut lining every three days, which made me ask, well, why in the hell does everybody have so many gut problems? Because they can't make new cells that work. Then that begs the question, what do you need to make a new cell that works? And that leads me back to the same fundamental A and B. And that's why tight tissue tension is so important. And that's where trauma resides, as tightness and tension in the body. And it resides anywhere that it wants. But in my work, I found that it resides mostly in the front of the body, the anterior part of the body. But we don't feel most of our pain in the anterior part of the body. We feel some of it. But if you think about where most people complain of pain, it's most often on the backside. So for me, I know there's going to be trauma or tightness or tension in the body. And then I have to ask myself a question. If I go in there and I start to release all that tension, why the hell does it keep coming back? Right? And yeah, it could be coming back from a biomechanical issue. Sure. But there's a person attached to the biomechanical tissue. Maybe I got to tap into one of their stories or one of their emotional patterns, or they don't even know why they're pulling into a tight, flexed forward pattern. I know why they're pulling in there because they're trying to protect themselves. And that's where you have to dig deep and you have to go into a history. Here's the one thing I know. When somebody comes in to see me with chronic issues, I have to go way back, all the way back to decades, depending on how old they are to stuff that happened in the past that they think has nothing whatsoever to do with what's going now or they think it's irrelevant. Everything that's happened in your life is not irrelevant. Your nervous system and your immune system never forget anything, even though you do. That's my joke. Which means that subconsciously, you put that away or you've it's been something that you've tried to push away, but is always there, and you've consciously forgotten about it. But your subconscious never forgets. It's always in the back here, always speaking to you, driving your behavior for everything, even though you don't know it. And that's because what we mentioned before when we were talking is that you have the subconscious part of the mind and you have the conscious part of the mind. And we know that the driver of movements and your behaviors, they're finding that 10% of that is conscious movement. So if I want to reach out to grab a can here, that's 10% of my brain functioning to make that happen. The other 90% is all subconscious. It's happening in the background. 
putting everything in together that you need to do it and remembering that a split second, you know, what happened last time you reached for a can and scanning everything. So most of your movements are driven without you realizing that it's happening. That's why we fall into habits and behaviors all the time. So that's really, really important when we understand that a small percentage of your behaviors and your habits are consciously driven. And that's kind of like what pain is. I mean, pain, pain is a conscious indicator of you having a problem, right? Because you don't know you had a problem until something hurts, right? I mean, that's what you get pain for. Oh, my God, my right shoulder hurts. That's awareness that I need to change something. I don't know what it is. I just know you better be doing something different than what you're doing now. And if you don't have pain, then you're dead. Whatever the condition is called where you, you don't have nociception or you're not able to feel pain, you're like a, an immense liability. So the idea of like, oh, just get rid of pain. It's like, no, no, pain's your friend. It's just figuring out how to communicate. I think like everything, it's like, what's your relationship? Oh, it is. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't have pain, you wouldn't be alive very long because you couldn't tell if you had an infection and then you would die. Right. Plus, you'd go insane because you can't sense pain. And pain, pain is how you learn. Pain is a protective response, hopefully teaching you not to do something again or how to make it a little bit less next time when you do it. Pain is a great teacher if you can have the awareness of it. So pain, my definition of pain is pain is a request for change, change some kind of habit or a behavior. One of those being your thinking process, right? But so you have the conscious awareness of pain. That something was probably building up for a long period of time before you actually had the pain. I'm talking about non-traumatic onset pain. Like if I slip and I fall and I land on my elbow, A equals B. I mean, fix your freaking elbow. But then I'm going to ask, why'd you fall in the first place? Maybe you got an inner ear vestibular balance problem, something like that. So then I'm going to fix that up, but then that can lead to what? A lot of pain and problems later because you're going to be scared of falling all the time from that point on, right? Especially when you get anywhere near something that was like the environment that you were in. So pain is that only a small part of your awareness. What I look for on people are areas of their body where they have pain they don't know about. Yeah, the operative word is yet. Or they're feeling pain. They have a problem somewhere else or a tension somewhere else, but they're experiencing the pain in a different location. Because pain doesn't tell you anything. Pain only tells you that you have a problem. It doesn't tell you what it is or where it is. If treating pain was that easy, my grandmother could be a doctor. She'd just rub Ben Gay on it and give me a shot of Jack Daniels and give me an oxycodone. That's a really great grandmother. I'm, I feel great. But, you know, you got to look at the whole system, not just where it hurts. You start where it hurts because it feels good and it's part of the equation. But that's why we get lost. Stop chasing pain is my brand name. That's what it means. It doesn't mean stop treating pain. It means stop chasing it kind of going all over the place because you're not really fixing anything. You're just reacting to things. So what I do is that I try to find areas on the body that have a lot of pain, but you don't feel that it hurts until I find it and I press on it. And then you go, oh my God, that like really hurt. I had here's what they say. I had no idea. Right. But I go back to the, the conscious and the subconscious. Yeah, you actually did know. 
You just didn't consciously know it. Your subconscious has always known that your left glute max is horrific or your left glute med is horrific. With It's tight. It's tense. It may have a knot or trigger point. I don't care what you call it. You can call it a, a cucumber. I don't care what you call the knot. It doesn't matter. Like, people get so caught up in debating names of something. I'm like, the name is irrelevant. I just need you to know what the cucumber has to do with your right shoulder that hurts, right? Whatever it is. So it's been there. Subconsciously, your brain's had to move around it. It's had to change something. It's had to adapt to something. So maybe to protect your left hip where that glute is, you know, we're overswinging a shoulder to make up for the loss of momentum because you couldn't really move your hip as much because your, body, your brain felt there was so much tension in that glute, right? And then you're going to say, well, why, did the, why didn't the brain hurt my left hip? I have no freaking idea. And it doesn't have to explain itself to you at all. I mean, it could choose whatever strategy that it wants to. I'm thinking this. It's way harder for you to ambulate and move and function in the world when your hip goes than when your shoulder goes. So your brain has to make a call. All right, Perry, I'm going to send you something here, man, and I got a choice. It's going to suck either way. I can take your hip out or I can take your shoulder out. And it says, okay, the smart play is to take the shoulder because at least I can get away and run away and move with the hip because that's the smarter play for the number one reason that your brain does anything. And what is it? Survival. Get away from a threat or try to not have pain. Pain is the last thing you feel in a process, not the first. That's an interesting idea, almost like an intelligent compensation. Yeah, that's exactly. So here's a phrase I use all the time. I say, think like your brain, don't think like a research paper, right? I need you to think like the brain. And then that's when you have to understand what drives the brain. What drives the brain are a couple of key things. One, not being dead, top of the food chain. Number two, being able to predict what's coming next to fulfill priority one, which is not being dead. Because the better that I can predict, the better chance I'll be alive. When I have more uncertainty, it's less chance that I'll be alive. So I'm going to make something certain whether it's whether it's true or not. Because the brain is not designed for accuracy. It's designed for survival. Those are two different things. You don't have to be accurate to survive. You can get something completely wrong and still be alive. So accuracy has nothing whatsoever to do with survival. And then it, it wants to conserve energy and use the least amount of metabolic activity it has to to accomplish A plus B. So in essence, your brain is really, really designed to cheat, take uh, cut corners, and take the easy way out, otherwise known as, in nature, metabolically efficient. Just those three things. Okay, and then you got, of course, reproduction is in there somewhere, right? But even that's hard to do when you're dead. So it's still number one. So I just go by those three things. So if I know those are the three things driving subconscious behavior, which is 90% of your habits and your behaviors, why in the hell am I going to chase the 10%? That's not going to get me anywhere. What I'm looking for is long-term results, and that's subconscious, right? So for me, I put the puzzle piece together and say, your body never does anything without a reason. It's not stupid, and it's never by accident. 
And then I say, what's the reason that it's doing something? And it's to protect you. So I'm looking at the strategy. What's the long game play for what we have to do right now? Because the body has to do the best it can with what it's got and the moment it's in for your survival. And it may not seem like the right decision. That's like side seat driving. Like you come in later and then you question why it did what it did. Because it had to make whatever decision it needed to in the moment to get to you being able to question it. You follow? So I look at it as is always a reason. And then there's no right or wrong in relationship to what the body does. There's only utility, which means the brain is not doing what it thinks is right or what it thinks is wrong. That's cultural driven. That's society driven. That's individual driven. Because my right could be completely wrong to you. That's irrelevant. Is it useful or not? Is it useful or not? If it's useful, the body will keep doing it. Even bad habits are useful. Doc, I keep drinking alcohol. That's not useful. Yes, it is. In some way, shape, or form, you're getting something from it. I'm not negating that it is a physiological disease from that, but you also will end up getting an emotional attachment to it. There's something there. You just don't know what it is yet, right? But here's the thing. The brain takes in its past actions to help it predict and do what comes next. So a lot of people hold on to these habits that are no longer useful. It's just ingrained in their brain as a neuroplastic thing. So they're no longer useful and you have to show the body or teach the body that there is another way because it just doesn't know what it doesn't know. You follow? So when I step back, I just always ask people, when I'm looking at someone and I'm trying to help them, I'm like, okay, I'm going to think like the brain. And then here's the cool part. Now I have to say, I have to think like my client's brain because it's different than mine. Why? Because of the stories that it's been telling itself the whole time. So when people come in to see me, I don't treat a disease. I don't treat a diagnosis. I treat the human being that's walking in with it. And I treat the underlying inflammation that's in the system. Because if you have pain or discomfort in your body, you have inflammation somewhere. It's probably going to be where it hurts. But trust me, there's going to be inflammation somewhere else because you have that tension myoneural syndrome and you got tight tissue somewhere and it doesn't accept blood flow well. And it could even be in your own head, neck, and brain. So people have neuroinflammation in the brain. And then that changes how you perceive pain in the rest of the body because of the inflammation in the brain. You see? So everything is interconnected. So one of the premises that I, that I do for people is, is that I just try to take a look at areas of the body where other people might not have paid attention to or don't think are relevant. Because by the time you find me for help, you've been to a lot of different places. I'm not the first place you see. I'm the last place you see, and that's by design. And the last thing I'm going to do is what everybody else has done to you so far, because if that's what you needed, you wouldn't be asking me for help. You're coming to see me for how I think, because how I think determines the therapy that I'm going to choose to try for you. So then I naturally just do the polar opposite of what everybody else has done. And I usually end up getting a different result. 
want to take a moment and thank a company that I am presently very excited about, referred to as Eaton Hemp. Did you know unhauled hemp seeds contain omega-3s and omega-6s at the perfect ratio of 1 to 3? That's the ratio that's ideal in our bodies and just so happens to be the same ratio in hemp seeds. Pretty ridiculous. They are the only plant-based source from this ideal ratio. Omegas are fatty acids that can help your body in positive ways. But when you consume more omega-6 than omega-3, you trigger inflammation and even weight gain. Omega-6 fats are found in the American diet in excess. Big surprise. That's why we need to be intentional about eating foods that are higher in omega-3s and ideally have that perfect ratio. Although most hemp seeds you find on the shelves are hauled, that's why I love Eaton Hemp's hauled toasted hemp seeds. They are said to be nature's most nutrient-dense superfood with 8 grams of complete protein, 10 grams of prebiotic fiber, and over 1,000 milligrams of omega-3s per serving. Eaton Hemp's toasted super seeds are the perfect and most convenient snack to supercharge your health. USDA certified organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and keto-friendly. And the best part is that they have an absolute delicious taste. They have two different flavors, maple cinnamon and pink Himalayan sea salt. I love using the maple cinnamon to add into smoothies to add a crunch to them. And then I also enjoy using the pink Himalayan sea salt to add into salads, also giving them a little texture and a little crunch. I legitimately really enjoy the flavor of this, of this stuff. You guys are going to really like it. Best part, you can get yourself a 20% off discount. So grab your own bag now by heading over to eatonhemp.com forward slash align. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P.com slash align and use code align for 20% off. Again, that's eatonhemp.com slash align and use code align for 20% off. Plus, if you do not like your product, they offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you literally have nothing at all to lose by checking them out. I hope you guys dig it. I know that you will. It will improve your smoothies, improve your salads, and your overall health and well-being. So jump over to eatonhemp.com slash a lie. All right, back to the podcast. There's a bunch of things that stood out in there. The one, there's a, I think it's a quote from Socrates. I apologize for being so quotatious. It might not be Socrates, but essentially the, the quote is what the mind has forgotten, the body has not. And I think that that's like a, you know, it's not very complex. It's, it's pretty obvious, that idea. Like it's all stored in the body. When you're meeting a person at a grocery store or maybe it's a client or a patient or a, a date or whatever it is, you're never meeting just that person in that instant. And at the same time you are, but you're meeting, you know, a lifetime of stories and filters and perceptions and ideas and fears and wants and desires and, you know, and all of that. I think it was so interesting as you, as you're describing the, the, the TMS from John Sarno and mind over back pain is the name of the book. People are interested in checking it out. I think you were almost like, perfectly describing in a scientifically validated way the when you go see an acupuncturist and they're talking about you know you've got like a buildup of some kind of metabolic waste buildup or chi buildup or you know stagnation or whatever it is and then immediately they go into some conversation around like baggage in your life or baggage in your relationships or your emotional world and i think for a lot of people 
it's just kind of like, uh, like whatever, just give me some needles and give me some meds and let me get the hell out of here. But I think if you really do sit with it, it seems pretty obvious now, in my mind at least, after being really like quite critical of that for years and years. Now it seems so apparent for me that like, of course, like if I have physiological baggage, it probably makes sense that that's either the mind informed that or this is informing the mind. But they're certainly going to going to be complementing each other at the least and completely identical, you know, at the, you know, at the higher end. Yeah, it's always both. I mean, you can't separate the mental and the physical or the mind or the body. First of all, those are man-made terms. What the hell do they mean anyway? They have their own context and meaning to it. I always think about it like this. Most people don't come to grasp like the emotion-based side of pain and suffering until they've suffered for a really long time. And pain and suffering is how you get your lessons. You're never, you're never going to change or move to a new place when you're comfortable. Because why the hell would you? You're comfortable. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to move. This is awesome. So you get the shove outside your comfort zone. And the longer that you're there, and when you look for what is logical or what within, within reason, right, or whatever double, triple, quadruple, you know, in, infinity study you want to do, when they don't help you anymore and then people say, I don't know why you've got what you've got, then you hit rock bottom. That's usually when you got you call your way out. And then you'll find that emotion-based work. That's what happened to me. I mean, I didn't gravitate towards this stuff early in my career. I was a myofascial guy, subluxation, you know, nervous system, and then movement guy. And I got sick and I damn near died. And I had a mental breakdown and a physical breakdown. It became suicidal on the phone with a suicide hotline and trying everything that I've learned over the years and seeing everything in medicine to get me better. And I was getting worse. And I'm like, okay, I got something's got to shift here, man, because whatever I'm doing is not working. That's pain. So I came across that emotion-based work and the lymphatic system and looking at what I told you before of I'm lying in bed. I'm like, why am I not getting better? And I, I make it simple. It doesn't have to be difficult. Like the human body is complex. It's not complicated. And we have a tendency to think because it's so simple that it can't be that powerful and it can't work. Well, first of all, you're wrong. It usually is a fundamental and a basic because if you're not sleeping, no magical course I went to is going to help you. So I got to get you to sleep. If you're not drinking enough water, nothing in the world is I'm going to do for you. It's going to help you. If you don't have enough minerals in your system, you're never going to be able to make new cells that work because you can't make enzyme reactions without minerals. I don't care what I do. If you don't have enough stomach acid, you're not going to get better because you can't break down the nutrients that go into your mouth to actually break down the food so the cells can get their nutrients and you can break down toxins that go inside of your mouth. That's a big deal. But it's simple. It's just the awareness of it. So I just gave you like three big ones. Make sure your stomach acid is good. Make sure you get good sleep. Make sure you take minerals and make sure you drink water. You'll probably fix a lot of stuff just from doing those things and then move more of yourself more often in more ways and more environments. How should I move? Yes, I just told you. Like, don't overthink it. 
right? Because the more you overthink movement, you're going to move less naturally. And want to say, how about you just walk more? Walk how? Yes. Forward, backwards, left, right, uphill, downhill, upstairs, downstairs, whatever, right? And so I, I always want to try to get back to basics and fundamentals. And I, I know when I explain these things to people and then I show them the simples and the basics and they feel better, they said, I, it can't be that simple. And I'm like, first of all, who said so? And then they get upset of like, why nobody ever told them these basic and fundamental stuff before? Because we, we live in this world where we think that everybody knows what we know. But most people don't know what, what we know. People talk about the power of breathing and, you know, how everything is about breathing right now. It's like faster used to be. Nobody knew what the hell faster was. And now everything's faster. And it's the same thing with breathing. Everything's breathing, breathing, breathing. They've been talking about breathing for thousands of years in Eastern medicine. So it's no big surprise to them. It's just everybody else had to catch up. Doing breathing can make a huge difference in your nervous system and in your pain. But here's the thing. In our little circle and people who listen to your podcast and people who follow my Instagram and people that I follow, they know about breathing. 99.9% of the other rest of the world don't. They're the ones that you have to keep talking to and making things simple because you can have really, really wonderful information that can change somebody's life. But if you overcomplicate it, it's not going to go in. Right. And you have to make it easy for them to accomplish it. So as a Nobel laureate, I can't remember his name, but he said something brilliant like a Nobel laureate would. If you want people to do something, you have to make it simple. So when people say, hey, doc, what's the best way to breathe? How about just in and out through your nose more throughout the day than you do now? That's it. I don't have to count the five and four and three and nine and close this nostril and do that nostril and put my hand here and put my hand there. And nope, just start there and see what happens because I can establish the habit, the behavior, and then you'll start to notice a difference. You'll start to notice a change. And then you'll say, you know what? I think I'm feeling a little bit better here. I think I might want to do a little bit more and you'll investigate other different things, but at least you've started. At least you you took a a step. I love Bo Lotto. I got a man crush on that guy because I quote him all the time. And he said, another one of my favorite quotes, he said, If you're trying to go from A to B, A is where you are, B is where you want to go. The first step doesn't have to be B. It probably shouldn't be B. It's just not A, which means you have B as your goal and you're at A. I don't care about reaching B. Just don't do A and then you'll already be towards B. But here's the cool thing. When you move off A, maybe you'll see, I don't even want B anymore. I'd like to go over to number two. You want to go somewhere else. But how did you know? Because you had to change something. So that's when people say, Doc, what do I change? Yes is the answer. I don't care what it is. Just make it not A. Right? So they say, what's the best movement for my back? Pick one. See if it helps. Right? And if it does, do that again. If it doesn't, pick another one or do a small little variation on something. Variation, variability, and variety. We call those the three Bs of Joanne Elphinston, my dear friend and physical therapist. And those three words mean one thing, different. Just do something different, something novel. And that's what pain is. Pain is telling you 
Harry, I need you to do something different. And if you continue to not listen to me, I'm going to hurt you more. I'm going to slap you harder. And I'm going to send you more pain until you do listen. And here's the thing that works too, is that even if you start treating somebody and they don't get better, that's the body telling you, you need to change what you're doing because that ain't it. Or I need you to change, here's the thing, where you're doing it. It's like, Perry, I really love the heat pack, but stop putting it on my damn back. Can you put it on your abdomen for me? And you're like, but body, the abdomen doesn't hurt. And the body's like, yes, it does. Trust me, I know, I've been living with it. You just don't know it yet. Go there. And then when you put it on your abdomen, you're like, that's the craziest thing in the world, man. My lower back feels better. Why might that be? Well, first of all, just because your lower back hurts doesn't mean that's where the problem is. Two, in your abdomen is where you hold most of the tension in your body and the shock and trauma of your life. It sits smack dab in the abdomen. But here's what people need to remember when they go and they study anatomy. If you want to get more blood flow to your back, you should probably put and get more blood flow from the pipe that it comes from, which is in the abdomen, the aorta. So to increase blood flow to your back, you should increase the blood flow in the abdomen, which automatically increases blood flow to the back. Because you probably have a choke point of fluid flow in your abdomen, of blood flow going to the lower back, and then venous flow being able to get out of the back, and then the lymphatics in your back that are congested and stuck going to the lymphatics that are stuck in your groin and in your abdomen, and then your back can't get better because it can't get the two things I told you it needed before, right? Nutrients, oxygen, and waste removal. So this is really important that I want to cover if I have a moment. The body knows what it needs to do to heal itself. Sometimes you just got to get out of its way. But I'm not saying that you don't do the other therapies that somebody needs. But I just want you to think about the process that the body is trying to do to heal itself. So let's say you have that injury to your lower back, right? And it needs, like I said before, I'm going to revisit this again because it's really important to understand. This opens up your mind into what, how I look at you when you come in to see me. I know the lower back needs help. And even if it is a biomechanical issue in the lower back, I'm, I'll give you that. And I want to fix that up. But it's an area that has trauma. It's an area that has injury. So it needs to heal. And in order to heal, it needs the oxygen and the nutrients and to get rid of the waste. So what I'm trying to tell people is what if that ability is compromised? What if you have a restriction in blood flow to the lower back because of excess tension in your abdomen, or in your sternum, or in the top of your neck where the, vein, the venous system drains to, or you have a stagnated liver that's so overloaded, you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is very common. You might have a methylation issue. You might have lack of movement in your liver, not enough fiber, whatever. But, you know, so you get backflow and stagnated in the liver as well. So you don't have adequate blood circulation in your body because the liver is overloaded. That's going to compromise your back because your back is part of the puzzle there. 
So what I'm trying to do is I'm saying that even if I put laser therapy, ultrasound, massage, myofascial work, heat or ice on your lower back, it's only going to go so far if I don't clear the mechanism of delivery for nutrients in and waste out. That's why in my world, I have to clear the pathway from your neck, from your sternum, in your abdomen, around your groin to allow the back to heal itself with what the body's trying to do, but maybe it's just stuck and can't do it. Maybe it's only 20% stuck. That's a big stuck. That's going to make a difference over time. So one of the things that I teach anybody who learns from me is this. I want you to assess the entire body and look for how many areas hurt because no areas should hurt. And then if somebody has, a, for instance, an issue along the back of the body, I never, ever in my world, never, ever treat the back of the body until I open up the front of the body so it can deliver what it needs to heal along the back of the body. Because the back of the body is the scapegoat to me. So much of your precious cargo resides in the front of the body. Your face and your throat and your sternum and your abdomen. First of all, your abdomen has no armor. There's no rib cage there. And then your groin. Those are all really, really important to your brain to protect for survival because that's your primary sensory input into the brain comes from that region. That's why you curl tightly into a fetal position when you're under attack to protect the most vulnerable areas. The most vulnerable areas of your body are in the front, not the back. That's why your primal reflex is a recoil. It's, it's either to, if you can't recoil back and run away, you'll go fetal, tuck tight, and then you'll take the abuse everywhere but the front. So think like your brain. What that tells me is this. If, if I'm coming at you and I'm giving you a beat down and your first instinct is to curl into a ball, what does that tell me that your brain is doing? Contracting the front. Yeah. It's trying to protect the front because it knows that if I take out the front, you're going to have so much more pain and you're going to die faster. So in my world, I look at that behavior. And I say to myself, that's interesting. The body has to make a choice. And its choice is to sacrifice the back of the body to ultimately protect the front. Now, I extrapolated that out and I carried it over to, so this is my working theory, right, of how I look at it. Whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but it freaking works really well for me, is that if your back hurts, Maybe that hurts because that's where your body said, listen, it's going to suck back there, but I know you can take it along the back because, listen, if I hurt you in the front, you're tapping out quick, fast, and in a hurry because you could have a rear naked choke and you're done. You ever see the ultimate fighting, right, in the ring? I mean, they can pound you on the back, but if they get you in a rear naked choke, you're toast, right, out for a second. So the throat is one of the most vulnerable areas in the human body. Yeah, or a liver shot. Yeah, exactly. So you see the fighters in the ring, the professional fighters who are trained to fight, when they're getting wailed on, and maybe they need to take a break and find out what their next move is, the gloves come up to the head, the ears and the face and the throat, and then they tuck for the body shot, and they try to protect the organs. 
because they know. And then they'll let you pound on the back and pound on the shoulder. So the front of the body is one of the first places. It's the first place that I go to and I check. So when you come in to see me, most people complain of pain in the back of the neck, the middle of the shoulder blades, the lower back, the pelvis in the back. My hamstrings keep pulling. My calves are always tight, all that. So the whole backside, even the bottom of the foot is a hot mess, right? So what I do is I just flip you over and I look at the opposite of the yin and the yang. I look at the flow state. So I look at your yin side. I look at the front side. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to press on your face and I'm going to see if it hurts. And it usually does because you've got nerves in your face that come off your brainstem called your cranial nerves. And those are really, really highly important to the brain in relationship to survival and sensory input. And it's not supposed to hurt when I put my fingers on those nerve points. Usually there's three big points on the face from the trigeminal nerve that controls sensation to the face. And then I go and I check around the neck, uh, around the throat, not the back of the neck, but the throat. And here's what I watch for. I watch to see when I'm around your throat, if I can see visible signs of your body pulling away because it feels threatened. Like I can see it in your eyes. I can see it in your mouth. I can see it in how you breathe. I can see it in where you move. So for instance, a lot of times I'll put my hand and I'll start to go down the side of the throat and I'll see somebody start to shake their foot really fast. What does that tell me? That tells me that your brain is telling you, this I don't like. This is making me really uncomfortable. What that tells me when I'm trying to help you is that's a vulnerability point. That's what that is. And that's what I have to find out from you. Maybe you had prior trauma in your throat. Maybe you had physical abuse or you got actually choked. Maybe you had a surgery and somebody put an intubation tube down your throat here and you felt like you had a choking, or you had a surgery in your throat, or a whiplash in your throat, right? And that's when somebody says, yeah, I had a whip, whiplash injury, I don't know, like 15 years ago, or something like that, or I got hit here with a baseball. That's going to be a piece of my puzzle. Then I'm going to go down and work down towards your sternum, and I'm going to press on your sternum, because most people have never pressed on anybody's sternum, because it doesn't hurt, Right? And then I see if your sternum hurts and if it's puffy. That's one of the most vulnerable areas of your body because your heart sits there, right? And all these reasons that I'm pressing on too from a Western medicine standpoint make sense because in the front of your neck, you've got a majority of the lymph nodes that sit there that can get clogged up. And when they get clogged up, you can't drain toxins from your brain. And it's the number one reason why you get neuroinflammation in your brain is because the lymph nodes in your neck won't drain and you have decreased venous flow from your brain down to your collarbone where the veins drain. So tight tissue in your neck will give you brain toxicity because flow can't go up and flow can't go down. And then I'm going to go down to your abdomen and I'm going to check in the abdomen and what we call the solar plexus or the celiac plexus and there's ganglia of nerves down there. But that's also the focal point. When you curl into a ball, that's the greatest place where tension resides. So if you curl into a ball, that's the greatest place of tension because that's the center of the curl. So that's one of the reasons why they call that your chi point in Eastern medicine. And it's also smack dab where the largest lymph node in your body sits that takes the majority of waste out of your body. And so when you get tension there, it can cause pain anywhere in the body that it wants. That's the number one spot in my world where emotional trauma and shock reside is in the abdomen. That's why when I go and I press in there, a lot of people cry on my table or they have an emotional release 
because of me going there. And then I just work my way down. And another very, very vulnerable area is the crease of the groin. I need to check those. And I'm going to tell you right now, in my world, when somebody has chronic pain or autoimmune disease, almost every time, every single one of those areas hurt more than the next. And two things that I tell them is, that, first of all, nothing is supposed to hurt when I press on it. And then another person says, they say, I had no idea how painful those areas were. And I'm going to cycle back to it again. That's part of finding your problem. And why when you go on my Instagram channel, I have a phrase. And I'm going to say this phrase twice because it's the foundation of my work in working with people who have long-term emotional issues, trauma issues, and chronic pain. We find the pain that you don't know about to help the pain that won't leave you alone. We find the pain that you don't know about to help the pain that won't leave you alone. So what do I mean by that? When you come in to see me and you point to your body part that hurts, you already know about that. And it's probably been treated a lot. And I'm going to treat it too because you expect me to. It's making you feel safe. It's making you feel validated. Right? But I'm also going to go after those other areas that hurt as much, if not more, than what you're complaining about. Here's the thing, too. It's not necessarily finding the other areas that are more painful. Because pain is only one way that the body can reveal vulnerability. Right? And, and everybody has a diff different level of pain perception. What I'm looking for is the area of your body that shows me neurologically in your actions and your reactions and your behavior where you are most vulnerable. And that's the subconscious talking to me. And the subconscious is what I have to change. Because if I don't change the subconscious, I'm not, I'm not going to make a long-term result. And this has been my struggle since I started in healthcare. Of why does stuff not get better? Why does stuff keep coming back? Even when we do wonderful therapies, it's not lasting. We're missing something. I want to go after the, the 90% that we're not looking at. That's always been there. So let me give you one example, if I may. So let's say that you have lower back pain and you come on with lower back pain. First place I'm going to go is I'm going to look in your sternum and your abdomen first. The majority of the time, the most excruciating part will be somewhere in the abdomen. Very often around your belly button is a hot mess on almost everybody. And then I'll look for the reaction and most people want to punch me in the face. That's a pretty big reaction. And then I'm going to go up to the sternum and then I'll go to the sternum and I'll press there. And maybe it's not as painful, but what I notice is this. I can see what I call neurological threat cues of your body where I see visibly that you change your breathing pattern. I see the color of your skin change. I see your eyes may start blinking way faster than they were at one point, which is a telltale sign of a neurological threat response that's really, really high on the food chain. You better pay attention to. Or you look away 
or you start to sweat or I see body parts move. Those are issues of like the nervous system is freaking out. That means I found a spot that's really, really powerful to your brain, even though the level of pain is not excruciating. In my world, the one that's the more important one is not the most painful one. It's the one that you show me the most vulnerability with, right? That's the one that I know that I'm ultimately going to have to go after, but I need you to hang on for one more second. You have to be careful because sometimes you can't go after it that fast because the nervous system's not ready for it because so many people don't know who they are without pain. And if you take away that life preserver of the emotional thing they're holding on, they've got nothing else and they get worse. So what I have to do is I go after the abdomen first and then I tiptoe up into the other one because now I've got a little bit of a trust factor. I've got a safe factor. I've got a connection to the person and now they're going to be able to let me in. So the more issues that somebody has, the slower you have to go. That's another reason why a lot of people don't get better or therapies don't work because people do. They need therapies, but they're getting too many at once and too many treatments and too often. So their nervous system and their brain doesn't know what to do with all the good stuff. So it doesn't do anything. It stays there and it, it does what it's used to doing. And what is it? Freezing, not changing. When I say stop chasing pain, there's a lot to it. And you, you got to start somewhere, right? And you're like, holy hell, I don't even know where to start. Well, here's a novel idea. How about you just stop looking where it hurts? Start there. And I said, well, when we were speaking the other day, the easiest way to do that is to just do opposites. So everything in nature has a balance. Like a, you know, left has a right, up has a down, right has a wrong, yes has a no. So if something hurts on the back, go check the front. If something hurts on the front, go check on the back. If my right shoulder hurts, check my left shoulder. If my left hip hurts, check my right hip. Right? And then you get crazy and then you do diagonals. And you say, maybe it's my right shoulder or my left hip. Yeah, I think oftentimes from like a body perspective, the part that has the tension that's kind of clamping the system, for lack of better words, is opening up the inhibition and instability for some place else to go haywire and then sparking these signals of pain or, you know, issues happening here. But the thing that's actually holding that, you know, might be, you might feel something in your left SI, but then, you know, you look on the right hip or the right SI or something like that's where the actual tension is, but that's sending that compensatory pattern to create that inhibition and instability someplace else to create the pain. Yeah, it's really important that you said that. I love it. It's very observant. And we have to remember that everything is connected in the body. Every system in the body works together. No system ever works alone. It never gets injured alone. It never heals alone. There's no such thing as an isolated injury in the body. There's no such thing as isolated healing. It's all hands on deck or nothing. And to me, you're only as strong and resilient as the system that has the most vulnerability in it because that's the linchpin. You can only step up to the strongest one for so long. You got to help that, the other one up. And it's usually the one that is not screaming the loudest. It's the one that is, is quiet, is, is silent. But that's one of the biggest things that I learned when I started to work with nerves of the body that people might find very cool is that 
if you have a painful nerve on one side of the body, one of the best strategies is to treat the same nerve on the opposite side. So for instance, if you have bad sciatic pain on the right, see, when you treat that, you send the body into a threat response, right? Like to a withdrawal response. And sometimes it fights you because it hurts. So what you do is you treat and stimulate the left side sciatic nerve, which feeds back into the right side sciatic nerve. And it usually can significantly decrease the pain that you had on your right hand side down there. Because listen, your brain doesn't know there's a right side and a left side sciatic nerve. It's just one nerve. But you do that for this, any nerve in your body. I see that a lot with trigeminal neuralgia in the face is that people have a lot of pain on one side. So what I do is I stimulate the nerve on the opposite side. And then that can decrease the pain on the, the painful side that they're coming in with. The last thing that all of this kind of like circling back to the original point that you had of, of play, everything that you're doing, if you're out on a date with somebody like that, there's a lot of inciting scenarios that you could say or do or take a person to place that might suddenly put them into a panic state that may have nothing to do with you, you know, or if you're working with a client or it's a business deal, you're trying to sell a house or whatever it is. There's a lot of things you could do that could inflict some level of like trauma or reinciting the sensation of, of contraction or resistance. And it might have nothing to do with you. It might be nothing but a swell guy, but ultimately it all comes back to creating safety. And so I think then what that is, is when the, the body feels safe, then it can open up. And when it feels like it needs to defend, then it, it closes. And I love the ideas of, well, not the idea, the reality that it closes in the front. That's a reflective mechanism to you know defend the vital organs and the throat and general and stuff. So creating that safety is the thing that allows that frontal space to open up. And then from there allows for the healing. But the process of creating that safety is typically a really slow open, accepting kind of process. And it's not like, a, all right, take it here and we're going to just change it up. It's like, if there's a, a small child that's hurt and scared and like locked up in a closet or something, you know, you're probably not going to just yank them by the neck and pull them out and say, get back to school. You'd be like, okay, like, how do you approach that child that's, you know, contracted and in a dark closet? Because you probably have a lot of symbolic dark spaces inside yourself. And it's a matter of, I think, like having that safety and trusting the process, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's well said. I mean, it's a long way back when you've, you've gone that far down into a shutdown mode. And even when people want to come back, it's like being behind a glass and you can't get out. But you would think that, okay, well, I know that I can bring somebody back with social engagement and if you smile and you become that social interaction, they're too shut down. That won't work. So you can't go at it like that. And see, mammals and nature have very similar behavior patterns. So we think that we're above everything else because we got, we're on two feet and we can make cool things like Zencaster and Zoom, right? We all behave kind of the, the same way. And then Stephen Porges, who was a, the creator of the polyvagal theory, said that Asked him what trauma was, and he said, trauma is a form of broken trust somewhere. You have to have somebody, and maybe they don't even trust themselves, or they were in something that they can't trust. It's a lot of uncertainty is a, is a lack of trust too, right? But I always think about it like, um, let's say you have a, a neglected, traumatized, or wounded animal, like a dog or a cat. 
So it's been isolated and it, it can become angry or it can become reclusive and it won't usually come near you, right? It's very timid. It's, it's very shy. And that's the one where you slowly build up, right? You, you say, I'm going to put little water dish out or food dish out. And then they start to get a little bit more empowerment and then they get a drink and then they get some food. And then eventually you may get to it where they come closer to you and you can hand it to them, right? Like things like that. And is that's that establishment of that trust factor with someone. And you have to go by what steps that is. It's not a cookie cutter solution because it depends on the human being and the person that you're, that you're working with when they're stuck in that black hole. But here's the thing that I found is that a lot of times, because I see people with trauma and PTSD and I teach different courses on that. And that's why somatic stuff and movement stuff and the felt sense is a, is a way to begin to, to have some sense of trust of, of things that you're experiencing or feeling and with movement to be able to, to come back. But it's quite fascinating. Is I, I think that the, coming into the, the social engagement part and the play, I was reason I brought that up, by being in that state, however the heck you get there, maybe it's getting a, a puppy, maybe it's joining a kickball team, maybe it's taking a dance class, even it makes you uncomfortable at first. Like typically whatever the medicine you need, probably there's a good chance it might not taste that good right at first. You're like, oh, like, no, not the light. But by placing the human organism into that, that state, you know, Ida Rolf has a quote, she says, put the, put the joint where it belongs and then call for movement. You know, so whatever's going on in the body, figure out where home position is. Now just start moving from that position and the body will start to repair. You know, like, you, like you're not going to do any crazy shamanic, super cool physical therapy, like get the joint into position and then just, just move, you know, and then train from there and all that. And I think that that, that play position and that social engagement position it's a position of openness. It's a position of ease. It's a position of decompression. It's a position like all of the things. It's like you're waiting for some healing doctor. And sometimes, I mean, doctors are amazing. Healers are made, like all the things. Like it's all, it's all part of it. But if we can get the body into that socially engaged play space and then call for movement, which is, you know, inevitable and attached to it, then the body can start to process out i think a lot of that that pent-up stress and that's what when you have when you go into some type of fear response you know your body's going to produce the cortisols and the norepinephrine and all the things to to get you to run and move the heck out of the room or fight or whatever you need to do and naturally when we go for a walk outside or we dance or we wiggle around or whatever we're tracking back and forth with our eyes we're looking up we're ambulating aka walking which is an indication to our, our deeper subconscious self that we're moving towards safety. Wherever we were, we were getting the beat down. We were curled up and contracted. It might have been we've been curled up and contracted since we were three. And there was some inciting moment of trauma there that I've never really unwound. And I'm still contracted, holding, defending all this time. But that, that indication that I'm starting to be in that social engagement, ideally, or just moving in general, and particularly with you know the whole body, including the eyes, it sends the signal in, into the deeper part of your nervous system that you're you're getting safer. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I agree 100%. When you study 
somatics or uh, I've studied with Peter Levine and you know, trauma. They, they, they talk about trauma is like trapped energy. And you need to release that energy. And movement is a great way to do that. And then they use the example of when you watch traumatized animals in nature, when they're under attack and then they're able to flee or get away, they immediately, typically violently have a shake to themselves where the body just shakes really, really fast. It's kind of a shake off. I call it a primal shake off. And it goes and then it's gone and then they just move on to the next thing. But humans, first of all, you're under attack all the time. The predators never stop because the predators can be just surfing social media too long. But we're told to, you know, talk it out or don't talk about it and because not to release that tension and anger. So one of the things that I found quite helpful is that just shaking the body in many, many different ways works, works almost, I'm going to take it back almost. Do you remember Seinfeld, the lame dance? Yeah. You just do stuff like that. Or you just jump up and down, like rebounding, like on the balls of your feet, because your calves are natural rebounders. But you're just letting the the shake off of the body. And just the simple act of rebounding like that, And because they teach that in martial arts a lot, in Qigong, you jump up and down the balls of your feet and you shake out your hands and your fingers, you know, you, like that, uh, like a fighter in a ring a little bit, like they bounce around in the uh, MMAs, like, for a fight, trying to let off that tension. That can be quite helpful. Now, that's hard to do when you're in a primal shutdown mode. Uh, that's a really nice strategy that can be very helpful for some people. Because one, when was the last time anybody listening really jumped up and down? Probably not. And I don't think anybody intentionally danced like Elaine from Seinfeld. But you should, because I can guarantee you one damn thing. You'll be laughing quick, fast, and in a hurry when you do it. And it's going to make you feel a little bit better, and especially if you do it with somebody else. As you're saying that, the visual that came up for me is the, the, the conscious mind is can be stiff and brittle. And the unconscious mind is fluid or, or oceanic, which is like I think you called it oceanic. But it's like if you can tap into whatever you need to do, to get you out of that, okay, I'm holding my position. Okay, like this is how I do Perry. I am Dr. Perry. As long as you are Dr. Perry, you're separate from that oceanic part. And you're, you're, probably, you're probably fucking it up. First of all, it made me sound really like Thor Manly. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's one of the reasons that they're finding why psychedelics or shrooms might work so well because you get out of your damn head. You let the chains that's holding who you think you're supposed to be, or more importantly, who everybody else thinks you're supposed to be. Yeah, I think it's called mind, mind potentiating is the term for, I think that's like the original meaning of psychedelic. It's like potentiates your growth because you can, I think, come into that. You can get out of the way of yourself to become yourself. Right, because like we talked about it before, is that you're going to taste your past actions and your past experiences to give you context of how you see the world now. So if you can't let that go, you're always going to see the same thing. I started to play around with routine, like behavior, because you realize how much of your behavior is just mundane and then you don't even think twice about it because you're just like, I wake up the same damn way. I put my shoes on the same way. 
then I make coffee and then I let the dog out. And it's, it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm on autopilot, right? So what I've purposely began to do is being in the moment and aware and doing things differently. Like I, I'll try to do, make coffee with my left hand, which takes me freaking forever and frustrates me. But then I'll just switch the order around of something. And I kid you not. I mean, your brain is like, hey, wait a minute. Something a little bit different here, right? So that's could be the wire refire that you need to sometimes throw a glitch in your own matrix. There is no spoon, right? And then all of a sudden you're, this is nuts, man, but I think my hip feels a little bit better. It's just doing things a little bit different. Then it becomes a kind of a fun game. It's the classic of like you drove to work and you're like, okay, how the hell did I get to work? Because I don't remember doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to spice up with doing something different. You know, they say do different. And I flip that around. I say different do. That tease your nervous system up for, for neuroplasticity is putting yourself in these positions for potential error. That's what causes you to pay attention. Whereas if you're just in scenarios where it's the same kind of rote mundane thing over and over again, your brain, because it's really super intelligent and efficient, i.e. lazy, We'll just be like, cool, we're, we're checking out, we're disengaging. But if you're continually putting yourself in that position and where you are making errors, like you like, like fail fast, you're like, you're, you're comfortable in that place, then you're going to continually be in a more plastic state for, you know, adaptation and all the, all the good stuff. But you have to be willing to like accept challenge. And you don't have to start big. I mean, I, I tell people to do what I call little tiny action steps, little and often over the long haul. And then, then you don't then you don't put so much pressure on yourself, right? Because you can get so caught up into the goal, but what gets you to the goal is the system you have in place to get there, and the system are your everyday actions. So James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits, which you probably have read, is one of my favorite books. He said, "You don't rise to the level of your goals." you fall to the level of your systems, like what's in place to get you there. Most of the time people fail because they do too much, too fast, too soon. But I love that quote as well because I extrapolate it into healthcare systems, which means you're only gonna rise to the level of your systems of your body and how well they work together. Like I don't care how great they work by themselves. I need to see, can they work with everything else? That's why we get lost in medicine because you have system specialists for everything. And then they don't talk to each other. And I'm like, I got news for you. Inside your body, they do. <laughs> like, like all the time. <laughs> I so greatly enjoy conversations with you. After each conversation, typically spend the next couple of days kind of like stewing and pondering. So I appreciate you potentiate plasticity in my mind. Where is the best place to point people from here? Well, if they're still listening and we didn't fry them out yet, really simple. You just type in Stop Chasing Pain on the internet and then I'll take it to my website. And then that's kind of like the central hub for my courses, my workshops, my membership site and consultations. I do see patients in my office. I'm in northern New Jersey in a town called Waldwick outside New York City quick train ride over for people that are there. Also listen to my podcast and links on there. 
you'll find a few things that keep you busy. I've been at this game for quite a long time. So you'll, uh, I, I probably think the biggest place is Instagram. I, I spend a lot, what I like to call an unhealthy amount, healthy, unhealthy amount on Instagram. <laughs> so, All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you all for tuning in and uh, over and out. You guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Per mentioned, Dr. Perry is one of my absolute favorite resources on all things the mind body connection, pain in the body. What is pain in the first place? And how do we start to take actual steps to remedy and actually heal? So, I hope you guys got value out of that conversation. I think he is great. You can tag myself or him on the Instagram if you want to share this conversation. Tag me at Align Podcast. You can tag him at Stop Chasing Pain. Thank you for reviews on whatever you're listening to this on, iTunes, whatever it may be. Thanks for grabbing the book, The Align Method. And thanks just for doing you. You guys partaking in these conversations is meaningful and sharing the wisdom that we gather from the guests. That to me is incredibly meaningful. So if you this week maybe gathered one or two or three lessons from Dr. Perry and you just share your insights about that in conversation, doesn't even need to reference back to this podcast, just in general, keep the conversation going inside of yourself with other people. I think that that matters. I look forward to talking to you guys next week. Bye.